0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Solutions featuring your host, I see
2: Welcome to the show. Thank you once again for listening in to Revolution. My name is Heisi, your host, and I am happy to help guide you through the alleyways and byways of the show today. For our roundtable discussion, which kicks off every show, um, I am joined by two new people to the roundtable. My first guest is Linda Wiley, and she is a permaculturist. And she is also the host of the Living Well segment here on Revolution. And welcome to the roundtable, Linda. Thank you. And my second guest for the roundtable is Tino Kalenda. And he is the astrologer extraordinaire, Prometheus, as you might hear him when he does his astrology update segment here on Revolution as well. So welcome, Tino Kalenda. Thank you. And the topic I wanted to bring today was something that strikes me as a way that we probably don't even realize we live and interact with the people world and planet around us. And it's this idea of the difference between living in a way that is interactive versus a way that is transactional. So just to start off, because those are just some interesting terms to use, I'm going to ask each of you what you think when you hear those words as kind of a, a definition or a way of explaining what interactive might mean, what transactional might mean, when it comes to how we interrelate to the world around us. Uh, so, Kino, uh, why don't you kick us off with your thoughts around what you would define for interactive versus transactional?
0: Sure. So
1: for me, transactional would almost be a very one-sided relationship. It involves only one person or one party benefiting from the, from the from the, from the, the communication. So it would be similar to, you know, trading and bartering systems or maybe how a lot of financial markets work in that it's very rare for uh the terms to be on, you know, equal. And there's always, there's everything carries the cost. And it's another, another metaphor might be sort of the model of industrial farming that we have as our dominant food production, where you have monocrops and you have a sort of very stilted relationship to the landscape, because what you're doing is you're very violently converting the landscape into one type of relationship. And it's not a very equal one. So on the other hand, a more interactive sort of uh, situation would be one in which both parties tend to benefit from from whatever communication is going on. So it's very much about a dialogue in which the energy goes back and forth between the parties. And given that, that Linda isn't sure, I think that's a perfect metaphor because permaculture is built on the principle that... Um, is, is the food production, or at least you know, the farming methods, are integrated with the landscape, and they work with the ecology of the area, and they specifically are an expression of the ecology, and they reify those interactive relationships. So that's the best definition I can give. Oh
2: and, and Linda, what do you think of in terms of the definitions for those terms?
1: I did like what. Uh, Tino just said there about permaculture because permaculture is definitely interactive. Uh, it couldn't work in a transactional kind of way. And and from what we've shared already, I see a transactional for me then feels kind of like a dead and void kind of shallow, superficial way of doing things. There's not really a lot of heart or depth or thought or thinking or being present about it. It just kind of happens. And Interactive is a way where then energies are shared and exchanged and some other kind of growth and something happens in that way that you definitely see within the permaculture model because when you're interactive and plants and herbs grow together and you understand about the the canopy and the pioneer plants and all the different layers and things that happen in an interactive way, we can regenerate and heal almost any landscape, and so that has to be interactive. So I think that flows through onto all levels of the life. Actually, uh, transactional feels heartless, and uh, interactive feels
2: alive. And I think that the way that you just described the different layers, like in permaculture and how they all work together and all that kind of thing, the plants and and the canopy and all of that, it it made me immediately think about the way our society is structured. And our society is actually structured in a very stratified way rather than a very interactive way. Absolutely. So do you feel that we could uh, describe our culture and society as either interactive or transactional, or perhaps do you feel there's a combination of both, and if so, maybe there's like a percentage you could put on there where you say, well, we're, you know, 20% interactive and 80% transactional, or whatever the percentage might be for you?
1: So I feel that um, the world is more transactional at at this time, and I, I feel that that was kind of the downfall of how things happened, we, we got disconnected from the interactive, integrated reality of life into separate components and we, nothing happens in the, the same way, that's why it's not alive and, and vibrant anymore in many ways because so much of that aliveness in the interactive, integrative, combination of community and plants and animals and everything together in harmony is lost. Uh, um,
3: I'm,
1: I'm more apt to agree with Linda on this one because uh, I would say that it's honestly about an 80, 20 split across the board, you know, 80% because if you look at so many of our cultural institutions uh, from banking right up to how, right up to how sexuality is expressed, it's all very transactional. Um, you know, we we no longer have economies that are reflective of a, of a cultural matrix out of which they emerge. They're not reflective of the local ecologies and the local resources of the land base that they are in. So essentially they've been disassociated from the actual terms of production. The other thing, too, is that... Uh, the means of production and perhaps this is a Marxist statement, but the means of production do not belong to the people. They belong to a very small, you know, between one and 10% of the human population that make up a financial elite. And so essentially they control all the terms of production and they pretty much control the terms of trade and economics. And, and, you know, it, 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 it basically trickles down into all, all levels of society so that everything is turned into a transaction. Now, I would say 20% because there is an interactive feature in that there is a burgeoning groundswell of people who are recognizing how problematic this relationship is, and, and so they're doing work in, in regards to bringing things into a more interactive framework. I see this a lot in, in cutting edge science where there's an understanding that the reductionist approach can only, you know, have epistemological limits and can only tell us so much. And ultimately, what we see is the more we look into something deeply in the scientific sense, instead of, you know, isolated parts, what we see is just endless layers of relationships. Whether we're talking about the formation of a galaxy or the formation of a, of a cell, what we see is just constant relationship and interactive feedback. So I would say that that the physical and chemical world is very much interactive and that our, our currently our dominant social world is very much transactional, but that there's a groundswell that's trying to change that,
2: you know. I know that it goes beyond this definition, but when I hear transactional I always think money. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it could be other ways of, of bartering or or you know, and, and I think it's when we lost that sense of what value means and everything started to be valued in the terms of monetary value, profit value. Uh and the bigger the population got, the more we seemed to move towards that. Uh and so you know both of you have kind of alluded to this idea that we've lost something when if you look back into the history of all time um when would you say that you feel there was a dramatic shift from a more interactive relationship with each other and the planet and the world around us to a more transactional type of approach and culture that we now seem to be in
3: well, I
1: would say that if ninety nine point nine percent of human human history has lived in uh, in hunter gatherer civilizations, and I call them civilizations because they were truly civil societies, uh, very egalitarian and very much connected to the landscape around them, even if they were nomadic, they still had very strong relationships to the to their biological ranges. So, I would say that the transition began in earnest probably sometime uh, in the middle of the Neolithic period, which is basically the period of time when agriculture was beginning to rise. And I would say that it really took off with the rise of the first highly complex societies. So, we're talking societies that actually had, you know, classes of people that could have leisure and that, you know, managed the resources so you know like temple priests and that sort of deal because essentially it was at about those that time that we saw the first rudimentary monetary systems emerge so it's to say that that they were using some form of you know symbolic a symbolic piece to represent the thing of value which was the resource coming from the land base that inevitably created the first sort of stratified economics. Uh, The Industrial Revolution, you know, reified this as a result of the Enlightenment philosophies. And, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution pretty much turned it into the strongest vector for culture. And then from there, I would say that it really, really, really began to turn everything transactional Maybe just less than 40 years ago with the rise of neoliberalism, which is the idea that a market can provide for human needs and necessities and that that it's the market that determines justice and law and policy. And it's been a dangerous precedent because essentially what we've seen because of it is things like trickle-down economics, the rising uh, inequality that's been so problematic, and uh, just a great deal of the the you know uneven distribution that has been so present and it's by far probably one of the most dangerous philosophies we have because it's quite literally killing us and that's speaking from a public health perspective it has such an impact on health in so many different ways um, Nicholas Freudenberg wrote a book called Lethal But Legal where he actually discusses how industries have used this philosophy to leverage the sale of, of very deleterious products. In his case, he was taking on um, automobiles, cigarette manufacturers, big pharmaceuticals, and, and, and other industries that have to do with that sort of thing.
2: So, so and, and, and your mention of the, the political aspect of things, and when you say like the last 40 years, And I was thinking just even a little bit more with regards to that, there seemed to be this period of time where people were more comfortable handing over power to the government and saying, our politicians will make the laws, our politicians, you know, can decide we we vote for the politicians who we feel will represent us, but then we allow them to do their job. And um, I, I feel like there's this craving for interactivity that's innate in people And that's why we see now so much more of like protests and petitions and all of that kind of thing, because people are coming back to realizing handing over to and then allowing somebody else to decide isn't necessarily the best way because it takes out any sort of input or dialogue or even understanding on, say, the politicians part of what the person they're passing laws about is going through in their life. And so I think people have that innate desire for interactivity that is starting to really swell up again, and and is wanting to be heard and is wanting to be re-engaged in in, in some ways. Um, and, and, and and Linda, when do you think you know if you were thinking back, when what what would you identify as kind of that shift of when we went from more interactive to more transactional based society in the world?
1: Yeah. I feel it was in the time frame again when we went from the hunter gatherers into the agricultural kind of reality. Um, I feel that in the it might have started some then, but the age of enlightenment to me, which was really the age of enlightenment, where science became more powerful and more important than the heart, than the spirit, than the connection with nature and these kinds of things. I feel this is where, uh, for me, the split came between transactional and, and interactive. We lost that, and we gave our power away to these people who we thought knew more than the, than us. Oh, why we, we'll leave it to the lawyers. We'll leave it to those that know, and that was when we really lost our way, too. And lost our power to speak up and say, hey, you know, wait a minute. Because the Industrial Revolution was actually the mining of our minds and spirits. Now, mm-hmm. uh, That, to me, is the deepest part of it, and it was facilitated through uh, the age of enlightenment. And Charles Eisenstein, are you, are you familiar with him? He's a, a, a wonderful young, younger man, and he's uh, written many things about economics and the economy and he has a couple of books that I really have enjoyed and it's called sacred economics and also the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible and all these things involve what a transactional world doesn't have to me deep inner looking understanding about judgments and prejudices and where they came from and how many of the thoughts we think are not our own but from the program manipulated world which seeks to separate us and destroy this interactive, connected, integrated world that really is the truth. And that's the way they're able to carry on their transactional world is through the the destruction of our mind and spirit, which they've done. And Charles Eisenstein is really great about barter and um, understanding that money Is simply, you know, like the dollar is just paper with green things painted on it, but we are given tremendous power to. So there's something about energy to the exchange of energy and understanding about this interactive, integrated, connected world that has a heart, which, you know, the heart was online, as I always think about it. None of what is going down would be going down in the same way. We would not allow this kind of thing to be happening to us.
0: Yeah. To add
1: to, to add to Linda's statement, because that's absolutely a brilliant thought frame. um, I would say that, yeah, the enlightenment was definitely sort of the, the hard marker in culture where, you know, we saw this sort of hyper individualism on steroids emerge and it was also a time when reductionism as a philosophy became exonerated. And what's interesting is that as we're moving forward and so much of this new awareness is emerging, permaculture and various other things, science itself is beginning to shift into a new paradigm. And it is recognizing that reductionism can, is only useful in certain contexts. And increasingly it's recognizing that there is a lot of relationship going on in the world and going on in the universe itself, and that it's relationship that helps to better explain how phenomena operate. So you know, it's a sea change and it's a paradigm shift and and we're seeing it not just in science but everywhere. So,
0: yes.
2: And I think it is sorry. I, I was just gonna say, and to me it's interesting because I think today we would tend to think of a lot of that in terms of power and who controls the money and all of that as government, you know, as uh, politicians, corporations, and that kind of thing. But going back to, like, the Enlightenment, it's, it's, it seems as initially we gave the power away to
0: science.
1: Certain framework of science, because science did exist before then. It just operated on very different principles. So Well, time, not, not what, only that, really... They, they took over. I mean, clients became the rationale, the reason, the way it was. There was no more interaction with the heart. That was yeah. cut off then. Yeah, it, it absolutely was. It, it was basically it was exonerating the rational mind above all else. And yes, and that's when we lost that connection, when that interactive, integrated, alive understanding and connection with earth was severed. Yes, absolutely. And it was because of that severance that reductionism was able to become so dominant as a philosophy because it was now an understanding that that nature was a machine. It was inert. It was dead. It was, you know, it was just an assemblage of various parts. And what we're realizing is that increasingly that's not the case at all. It's it's very much an interactive and relationship-oriented sort of thing. The more we look at things, the more we see relationships. We don't, yes.
2: we don't see separation. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, for me, for me, it always goes back to Egypt. Um, you know, for, for the Egyptians, they saw the, the mind and the heart as both sitting in the heart itself.
0: Mm-hmm. So say- the
2: heart was, you know, that seat of both intellect and emotion. And I feel like what you're talking about with like the enlightenment is the split where yeah. the intellect was taken out of the heart, yeah. Yeah. and that also meant, when I was saying, you know, we, we that's where we started to really give the power away to science in a general statement, that right. um, it meant we lost the interactivity with our own inner voice, our own intuition, yeah, you know, our own personal gnosis, if you will, yeah. because everything had to be based on observation and experimentation and facts, you know, and all of that, and there is a place for science, of course, but I think that we've totally, you know, gone far too much to the extreme the other way.
0: And we need
2: the interactivity with the self and the inner self just as much as we do with the outer self, the outer world.
1: The heart is the main organ of perception in truth. And it connects up with the mind. Then the mind, body, uh, heart, soul connection works in the proper function but what happened is the brain, the mind, got elevated into the kingly state of the all-seeing, all-knowing, all-everything. And without the heart, we only have a transactional reality, is how I see it, and, and we we don't have that interactive anymore. And Linda raises an interesting point because, you know, a lot of a lot of contemporary neuroscience is showing that, The rational process in the mind um, is only, the only way that that a rational process can work within the mind is that there has to be an emotional framework for it. So you cannot cut off the organic uh, understanding because it is through passion and through a sense of deep love that rational, rational thought is able to emerge. Because essentially rational thought emerges when we recognize that there's there's something at stake if we don't think rationally about it. So, for instance, you know, we have – if we don't think rationally about a lot of the crises that we're facing, especially climate change, and come up with, you know, really good policy to address these issues – you know, it's the difference between extinction or apotheosis for our species. So it's it's really important to understand that rational thought processes absolutely have to be based in the heart because essentially it's the only way they work. And this is what evidence tells us, you know. Absolutely. When you look at the world today, you can see there is no heart out there. Yeah. It, it is amazing. heartless. Science. Yes, It is heartless. And I just, that's my main little thing these days is about the heart, because without it, the rational thinking mind, the, you know, scientific something, it's empty. If you balance it with the heart, like the natives, you know, they they went out into what they heard the plants speaking to them. They understood what it was to do. There was love. There was connection. There was communication. And that's the truth of life. Yeah. Absolutely. Life is relationship. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: So (laughs) as we move to a close of our conversation and not wanting to end on a hopeless note, (laughs) 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 Um, and, and, you know, we have that saying that most people are familiar with, that if you want to change the world, you change yourself or change begins with me or however it gets said. So what would be something that you might suggest to people that they could start to do on a personal level, which will then expand out to affect the world around them, to move themselves from a more transactional mindset and conditioning, because I think part of it is important people have to just recognize they've been conditioned a certain way to start then changing that within themselves. Um, What would you suggest as as a, a tip for them to start moving from a a transactional mindset and way of operating and seeing the world to a more or coming back to a more interactive perspective and approach to themselves and the world around them
1: i would say what what linda mentioned uh prior to the conversation starting uh, the thing about attention is just pay attention and really what that is is that we so many of us walk through our daily lives mindless of of the world around us uh we're thinking about other things or we're we're rehashing you know um advertising jingles in our head like i i'm amazed that people can remember the mcdonald's advertising jingle but you know they can't tell me what their front porch looks like so really it is being present and attention bringing attention to the world around that surrounds you, the envelope that you live in, the thing that envelops you and supports you. So attention would be the first step. And then the second step after that is to engage in a relationship to that world and to figure out, you know, who are the people in your community that are stakeholders that you can, you can work interactively with to build a groundswell. Um, You know, the world is certainly changing that direction. There's, there's, there's a great deal of hopeful signs of this. You have groups like Anonymous and, and Occupy Wall Street and you know uh, Black Lives Matter, all of these things that are addressing these relationships, these important things about paying attention to relationships and power dialogue. So I would say that's a great place to start is
2: just start being attentive. And, and I think that brings up a really good point in that Um, all of the things that you've just said really are about, like, if we think of Black Lives Matter, for example, they aren't just, you know, making sure that they write op-ed pieces that get published. They're going out in the world and showing up, you know, to protest at places, to, to interrupt and disrupt, you know, a political rally or something like that. And I think what you were just saying is it's important for people to realize just because you the headlines in your Facebook feed doesn't mean that you are connected to, aware of what's going on in the world. It's that interactivity of getting out in the world and talking with people and um, and not, I say talking loosely because sometimes what gets lost there is the willingness to go sit and just listen to what other people have to say about their experience without needing to somehow (laughs) um, share or comment on that. Um, but, But, you know, I think that what you just said is so important, and the things that you used to illustrate that really bring up the point. It's about getting out in that world and interacting and dialoguing with the people, the places, the things, the plants, et cetera, of that world, rather than thinking you know just because you've read the story on a blog or something like that. So, Linda, what, what would you suggest as a, a tip for people to move to, back to a more interactive relationship with themselves and the world around them?
1: So, for me, um, one of the things that I find is so important and that really we overlook, and I think it really does begin with ourselves. You want to make a change in the world. Michael Jackson says, you want to make a change in the world? look at yourself in the mirror and start there kind of thing, you know? I think that mostly going out in the world is great, but if we go out into the world full of all of our false beliefs and all of the patterns and all the bullshit or BS or whatever it is kind of thing and all our stories and all the false things that are within us, we're not really doing the job in a way that I feel uh, initiates the change because... For me, interactive is from deep within. Transactional is superficial, shallow on the surface. So we have to look into our darkness. We have to see the darkness in the world. I kind of am one that gets tired of saying to people, oh, that's too dark. Well, oh, I can't possibly talk about that because that's not, oh, that's so negative. But the thing is, in order to be free, in order to be truly free, we must pass through the darkness and be burned and have in the alchemical experience of transformation and transmutation. That dross is burned away and we step out into the goal, which is the true self, which is without all those pattern programmed crazy ways that we go about it. This is how we set other people free because we set ourselves free in the first place. So in the transactional world, all of that is let go of. Here, just take a pill. Instead, you'll be fine. Right. So I think that's kind of how it it starts. And then we are out there in the real world. Facebook is never going to give us what we need. It's a great little thing, for sure, a wonderful tool, incredible. But they kind of took away community, which is interactive, personal, upfront, And gave us networking, which is transactional, uh, lacking that personal thing. And the only way we're going to survive, for me, is to be within community locally, and that's interactive. I'm really glad you brought up the point about going into the shadow and the darkness, because I think that especially in a lot of New Age spirituality circles, we see what, I, what has been termed solar spirituality. It's, it's an almost obsessive focus on only the light and only the positive. At the expense that people are going through processes of grief and loss and, and are looking into the bullshit that is, is, is swirling inside of their mind. The darkness is, is like the fire always burning at the edge of our consciousness, inviting us. Because the darkness actually is rich and fertile and alive, and it's where the soul hangs out calling to us so that we can be free. Yeah. And so the darkness really, if we can think of it in these more positive, juicy, right, rich uh, words, it's the door to freedom. And without the darkness, we have no contrast. So it is the light and the dark that gives death and dimension to this reality, we cannot have only one or the other and have what we have now. Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise everything remains superficial and you know, transactional. It's never about standing one or the other. It's about us standing together as equals in the truth of our common humanity. I mean, all humans need the same kind of thing, which yeah. is love and acceptance and care and compassion. These are the things that are interactive or transactional, and this is all those things.
2: And that's a perfect place for us to finish.
0: Okay. <laughs> because that,
2: is, that that was a, uh, that, that that's a perfect aspirational place for us to finish in terms of the things you just mentioned for us to remember and come back to. Um, okay. You know, and so I certainly want to thank you for a very, stimulating and interactive roundtable. You see what I did there? Uh, And hopefully for those listening, it has simply triggered a thought process. You know, it's not about having the answers. It's not about needing to see a result. This is not transactional in that way. It's designed to just engage the process and engage the dialogue to hopefully open it up to continue and be broader than what it might have been before. Thank you to my guests, to permaculturist and living well contributor here on on Revolution, Linda Wiley. Thank you, RC. It was great fun. And to astrologer and contributor as well to the Astrology Update here on Revolution, Tino Calenda.
1: Thank you. It's been fun.
2: <laughs> and for those listening, stay tuned. Coming up, we'll have my interview with two of the people that did the AIDS life cycle this year, both of them first timers, and we'll hear what it's like to experience something like that and what motivates somebody to take on that kind of challenge for the first time in their lives. Stay tuned for that. If you'd like to get a reading during the last part of the show, then you can get into the queue now by either Skyping in from the show page or calling 646-716-5510. So stay tuned, and we will be right back here on Revolution.
1: Find out more at facebookcom I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda.
2: Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's
1: about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Food is alive, it is a being, it is a sacred being. Food is not just our vital need, it is the web of life, Vandana Shiva.
0: Our body is a machine for living, it is organized for that. it is its
1: nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it
2: with remedies. Leo told story, War and Peace. To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in
1: our
0: process.
1: I am Linda Wiley and this is Living Well with Linda.
2: And here we are in July, and once again, we are thinking about how to continue to cultivate living well in ourselves, in our community, in our world. And we are here with permaculturist and living well expert, Linda Wiley, uh, who is our monthly contributor to the Living Well segment. And, you know, you are also so gracious and generous to join us for the roundtable discussion earlier. And, you know, there we were talking more broadly about um, living in a a world that is interactive versus transactional. And I'm curious, maybe you can speak a little more specifically around how you feel or what that means to you, being interactive versus transactional, when it comes to uh, our relationship to food and to the land and how we actually live on and work with the land and the plants and the animals and the things around us.
1: Yes, I'd be happy to talk about that because it actually started me thinking about things. Well, where is this transactional interactive place regarding food if it's in all layers of our life, all levels of it? So how does it work? So the way I feel is that modern agricultural, monocropped, GMOs, sprayed, chemicalized, poisons food is transactional. There's no real thought about what's going into our bodies, what happens to the environment, or if it is, it's on purpose, or they don't care, or whatever like that. So it's very uh, transactional. It's about getting as much money and profit as they can without caring about any of the infections on the environment or the humans or the animals or anything like that. So when we approach food and eating in a transactional way, we have obesity, we have high blood pressure, we have all the sicknesses, all the malnutrition, not well nourished, depleted food, depleted souls, depleted bodies, depleted minds. And this is the transactional world. So when we can realize this and take responsibility and start to interact in an integrated, interactive way, we heal the earth and we heal ourselves. And we, that's because we're actually touching our food. We're touching the earth. We're inviting our energy and then the earth with the plants and whatever it gives for food is also interacting with our energy and that is the give and take of life because nature also benefits from our giving as much as we benefit from her giving so reciprocity is a really wonderful word when it when it comes to food and reciprocity when we understand how there is the give and the take and what goes around comes around and we see how nature works in this way too there's a something that naturally happens and that's the great thanksgiving and we are grateful and we have gratitude and we see the beauty and we understand this and our energy and the energy of the earth and they intermingle and this is what enters into our body and we have life. Interactive, integrated living is life. When we eat food that's grown in an interactive way, it's organic. It's with permaculture. It's in harmony with the environment where you live. It's been touched by human hands, your human hands. It's even best if we grow our own food because through are touching the soil and loving the plants and communicating with them and sharing our space with them, they are able to gather from the cosmic forces or uh, all the health and well-being that our own specific body needs. This is the beauty of, of an interactive world is that We each know each other, and we can give to each other what we need. Plants need our love and care, and in response, they give us health and well-being. This is interactive. And so as the world changes around us and we start to see the lies of the transactional world, we can bring together within our own selves an integrated, interactive world that shares health and truth and life and love with each other and all things and so that's i think the best place to go for the best goal the best challenge and opportunity for us as a species is to become interactive once again
2: and and, you know and, and something that you were talking about there is you know right at the heart of why i chose to be vegetarian because it was more of an energetic thing But, you know, it's it's, I don't need to ingest and take in the way that the animals are raised, treated, killed. And, you know, for me, that's the interactive part is it's, you know, so much of it is done. And this is, I think, the same thing as to why, like, when you buy organic, for example, you're choosing to at least be in a little bit more of an interactivity with the plants that are giving themselves to us as food Because we're saying, I'm not going to treat you in such a way, and therefore you're now going to nourish me. But I want to be part of that kind of interaction rather than, I'm going to make you feed me at all costs, no matter how it's treated and what is done in order to get that to my plate. I'm much more about just be conscientious about what you're choosing to eat so that you are... Having that relationship with even what you put into your body rather than being um, unaware and, and unconscious in the way that you operate.
1: Absolutely. And for me, I do eat meat, but I eat grass fed local meat that's, that's lovingly cares. It's not in a big factory farm where they're feeding it all kinds of terrible food and things that aren't appropriate for it. And the people have no consciousness, no awareness. And it's a horrible thing. I totally agree with that. Um, And so it's with all food because transactional food is also... of preservatives and additives and artificial colors and all these kinds of things that the body doesn't need and that absolutely compromises the health of us and the planet so it's very important to be aware and conscientious to read the labels where does this food come from is this chicken sent to China to be processed over there flown on an airplane polluting the environment for a Process with who knows what kind of chemicals and whatever and then flown back here to be eaten and bought by us. Now that, to me, is total and complete insanity. That makes no sense on any level whatsoever. That is the transactional world run am- gone, gone insane.
2: Okay. And I think that some of this points to our total fear of death and willingness, and I know that this is going to sound odd initially, but it's just ultimately that's the greatest interactive process that we go through in our lives, is death. And whether that means our own death, I mean, that's quite the interaction there, but it's also being present when someone else dies or the acknowledgement of and seeing death as a reality. And in our food culture, everything is done for us to never see anything about in some ways not even the life that it lives because we're unaware of how it's raised etc and treated but also then we don't see how it's brought to death it just becomes this item on a menu that we order that shows up prettily presented on a plate and so you know it, We we lose any of that relationship to the things that are providing themselves and offering themselves as our food but I think it goes deeper to our society where we hide everything that has to do with death away. And, you know, and that to and me that's, is that ultimate interaction that we don't want to have to face. And and so death
1: and dying are part of life. Without death, there is no life. Without life, there is no death. It's kind of like the light and the dark. You can't separate the two out from from life. I mean, death happens so life can happen, and life happens so death can happen.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, something you did say may feel very um, daunting for some people because when we mention like you know the best thing we can do is grow our own food. Now a lot of people aren't necessarily in a place or a position to do that, whether it's knowledge of how to do that or whether it's you know, where they live, they wouldn't have any place to actually do that. And so I'm wondering if you can offer tips because it may not be that we have to raise our own livestock and grow all of our own vegetables and everything else. But maybe having some little thing that we grow for ourselves that we can add to the food that we consume can be important. And maybe you can give a couple of suggestions for people, even on a very limited space, budget, or knowledge, to to be able to just do something themselves that can bring that touch to the things that they eat and consume and prepare?
1: So first I want to say that I, I don't even think that we have to grow our own food. What it's about then is being present and aware of what it is that we're taking into our bodies so that we don't buy transactional food, we buy integrated food. We buy food that is, you know, as we have shared whole and healthy and alive and grown organically, and we touch our food,
2: so well, and, it, and isn't that isn't that the interactive part? Just stopping yes. long enough to ask the butcher where did this meat come from? <laughs> yeah, it's very an important. interactive process rather than just going in saying give me three pounds of that, paying the butcher and leaving, right. which is merely a transactional process. Exactly,
1: it's on all levels of the life we're we're speaking about, and in the integrative. Uh, interactive way, we're seeking out health and aliveness. That's that's one of the most important things. So we're really clear on where it came from. We shop as locally and organically and seasonally as we can. We um, so if we can't grow our food, but we we can support. We can only buy organic, local food, or not all, but you know, as much as we possibly can. And when we buy food in season, it's cheaper. So if we eat seasonally, there's a lot of it happening then, and so the prices aren't high. It's when we eat out of season, when we eat globally shipped foods from China and Thailand, it just doesn't make sense for an integrated.
2: Interactive society. Well, and this is where you know, like, seeking out a farmer's market. They're very prevalent now, and so just going there. That's why you'll find, you know, like the the pound of broccoli. You'll see how much I shop for because I don't know if they measure it in pound, but let's just say, (laughs) uh, you know getting that pound of broccoli for $2 at the farmer's market where at the, the local grocery store, even not like the high-end grocery store, but even in the regular grocery store, you know, that pound of broccoli may be $4, but of course they're having to mark up in order to deal with transportation costs because it was probably shipped from someplace. Um, and then the paying all of the people there but also go to the farmer's market and you engage in interactivity because you actually talk to and interact with each individual person at the stalls rather than just picking stuff up off of a shelf and then going through a line where sometimes you might talk to most people i don't think really do the person checking you out and now of course we have self checkout so you don't even have to talk to anybody you can just do it all yourself you know, but, but even just going to the farmer's market for something, which can make for a nice little Saturday morning excursion. Okay. And we're not saying you'll never go to the grocery store, but you may find that things taste differently in better ways, that things can often be cheaper when you're buying the things that are seasonal especially. And you may actually enjoy the process of talking to the person about where the food came from because they actually were the ones that grew it or picked it or are, have that very direct relationship to it. Well, we find that
1: being interactive is a human thing, that we, we like it, that we enjoy it. They try to take that away in the transactional world. We, we, don't, we don't really need to speak to a person or have any kind of interaction like that. It's fine. Just go and check yourself out, call on the phone, and talk to five different fake voices and never get to a person. You know, I mean... So the more that we can reinstate, I guess you could say, the interactive interactivity of life and the interactions of it, we change life. We we are a revolution.
2: So if um, if somebody did want to maybe just grow something for themselves, so that there's always just that little personal thing they can add to the meals that they make for themselves, what might be a tip or suggestion of something that is easy for somebody to grow in, say, an urban environment living in an apartment uh, or even a suburban, you know, environment, but maybe they just have a small little patio area or something? I'd
1: say herbs are a wonderful thing to
0: to to grow.
1: They're pretty easy. They're hard. They're perennial. Herbs are wonderful. They add so much spice to life. They add so much health to life. There's so much intrinsic good in, in our culinary herbs. They're really medicinal herbs and uh so i would suggest growing herbs and i would suggest lettuce you know lettuce is something that's really easy kale chard things like that they're really hearty. they come back they're easy to grow extremely nutritious having some sort of raw something with every meal is really pretty
2: important uh, and as we do every month, is there anything that you've come across, whether it's books or videos or things that you might want to tips. suggest and pass on to people to check out? A couple of little things, a couple of tips, a couple of little recipes.
1: So it is proven that being out in nature heals the body, the spirit, soothes the soul, soothes the mind, the nervous system. A beautiful place and necessary thing and it, and it goes right along with what we're talking about because transactional really isn't about nature to me and inter uh, interactive is about that so so when we go out in nature we're also interactive because we're participating whether or not we really know it. we're breathing the air we're appreciating the beauty and nature feels our love this is reciprocity this is interaction so so being out in nature and realizing the beautiful, incredible magnificence of life that is what we are starts with a deeper healing process within
0: ourselves too. And it's
1: just a really necessary thing. And while the weather is beautiful and lovely right now, make it a priority as much as you can to get out while it's nice, to, to just allow yourself some time to relax in it. Allow your time, yourself time to reflect because it's really important to do these things. These are interactive, healing ways that we've lost touch with. Take your sunglasses off at some times and allow the natural light, the ambiance, and the energy of this to enter into our bodies. So the sunglasses block it and it enters in through our eyes, our, the retina and however the mystery and magic and beauty of the body works and it's transformed and it feeds our pineal glands and the thyroid, the sinus, all of our organs are at need the light. So the sunlight in the sun is very important. Don't fear it. Just be wise. Go out in the morning and get your sun. And in, in the heat of the afternoon, afternoon time, cover up. You know, Wear a hat. Wear a, a shirt. And, and don't be out in the sun like that until, say, after 4 o'clock, 4 or 5 o'clock. Then you can take that shirt and hat off and enjoy the
2: the evening like that. And were there any specific books or videos or recipes or anything that you had come across you wanted to share?
1: a couple recipes to share. And because it's kind of like getting to be the crux of the summer here. And um, so we want to be interactive and we want to eat food that's in season and food that's local and food that's organic. And so one, one thing that really comes to mind for me, I don't know, I just thought it as a Greek salad and it includes all the things I think that we really love about summer, tomatoes, peppers, basil, feta cheese, tomatoes and cucumbers and red onions and red bells and green bells, all diced up, chopped up nice bite-sized pieces, and kalamata olives, red wine vinegar, chopped garlic, salt and pepper, Julianne basil, and toss that up. And it's it's just a lovely, refreshing thing to eat on a
0: summer afternoon.
1: So is watermelon. Watermelon is the one fruit that is not good to eat in the winter when it's shipped from all over the world, and you think, oh, great, I can have watermelon. But watermelon is one of the coldest fruits, so it actually cools the body and hydrates the body. So in the middle of the summer on a hot afternoon, absolutely the most perfect thing to eat. And one other thing, another really fun thing is in the summer is corn. Corn on the cob. It conjures up so many wonderful, good memories and feelings and things, but there is a caution with it. Make sure it's organic. Make sure it's local. Make sure it's non gmo and corn, grilled corn on the barbie with butter and rags or salt and pepper is delicious. You can take corn kernels off the husk and then you can make a corn salad. You can make corn salsa. You can add corn into your vegetable saute. You could even mix corn into your Greek salad, why not? So have fun, it's summer, be out in nature, eat fresh raw food and have a
2: grand time. Excellent advice. Well, (laughs) thank you for once again reminding us to live well and the importance of living well for our own well-being and to take advantage of the season and what the season has to offer in terms of the foods that grow during that time, the sun, the weather that allows us to do certain things, um, and just that conscientious awareness and relationship with the seasons and the world around us.
0: So, because
1: that imparts health all those things you talked about that we share that's how we have health yes. so go get it
2: <laughs> well thank you Linda Wiley for thank once you. again sharing your wisdom and experience with us and we will look forward to
0: finding out how to continue to live there with you and remember it's only
1: a dream. It's
0: only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream.
1: Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at linda at Thank you
4: and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day.
1: with host C Ludmers. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Icy.
2: When is the last time you pushed yourself outside of your comfort zone and beyond your normal limits? Have you ever wanted to do something that is incredibly challenging, deeply fulfilling, and supports a cause you believe in all at the same time? The AIDS Life Cycle is a fully supported 7-day, 545-mile bike ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles that raises money and awareness for the HIV and AIDS services in the Los Angeles LGBT Center and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. In 2016, they set a fundraising record with over $16.5 million raised, and this year marks the 15th year for the AIDS life cycle and the 23rd year for the event overall. Every year, this landmark ride through beautiful California delivers a life-changing experience for thousands of participants from all backgrounds and fitness levels, united by a common desire to do something heroic. Almost 3,000 cyclists and volunteer roadies come together to do something incredible, something that will change lives, something that anyone, even you, can be part of. If you're inspired to be part of this experience in 2017, you can visit www.aidslifecycle.org. Today, we're going to speak with two people who decided to take on this challenge and embark on this adventure for the first time in 2016. So please join me in welcoming this month's revolutionary guests, Sari Malin and Ryan Shabel.
0: Welcome to the show, Ryan and
2: Sari. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm extremely excited to hear some of the tales and tattles of what happened for you during (laughs) the week of the AIDS life cycle.
0: Thank you.
2: (laughs) So let us, I know it's very cliche, start at the beginning, and I want to ask, what is it that motivates someone to take on such a, an undertaking uh, of a ride like this where you're going to say, you know, I think I'm just going to go and sit on a little bicycle seat for seven days in all kinds of weather, going up and down hills with thousands of people. And then at night, I'm going to sleep on the ground and have to trip over who knows what just to get to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And then, mm-hmm. hope I get up and can do it all again the next day. so what what, what was that initial motivation or or catalyst that said, "I'm going to do this?"
1: I have two and and they I think equally important. Um, the first was that uh, I had been introduced to the a life cycle ride by um, a woman who I was in a relationship with, and it was, you know, it was very, she had motivated me to go. In fact, at that moment, I had never been on a bicycle as an adult. Um, and so I was, I was motivated to do this really grand thing because of all these friends who had done it. Uh, and then I was in a relationship where uh this woman was like, she had done it before and she wanted me to do it. And I was like, that sounds like a great plan. Um, and so uh Managed to get myself a bicycle and uh, got on my bike for the first time and, you know, started training. And that was really the beginning of my motivation, although that was three years ago. So it wasn't until this year that I actually managed to get in enough training and get on the ride. Um, But that was really my first introduction to AIDS Life Cycle was watching my other friends do it. Uh, and And then having somebody who I was very close with saying, I've done it. It's cool. It's awesome. You should do it too. Let's do it together. So that was my first piece of motivation um, originally. And then what prompted me to, to really get in and fully commit this particular year um, was my best friend who had also done the ride in years past and is also HIV positive and he, for a number of reasons, could not go on the ride this year. Um, a lot of health issues had come up for him. And um, and so my, my really deep-rooted motivation to do the ride this year was that he couldn't. And so I wanted to go in his, you know, in his place on his behalf. And so um, that's what really prompted me to get into it deeply this year and, and actually commit all the way to going.
4: I had heard about the ride from one of my friends, um, and that's when I was introduced to it, but I I hadn't really thought I would ever do it. And uh, I also briefly dated somebody who had done the ride, and he was just telling me about how he loved the ride. He had done it twice, and it was a great time for him. And at that time, I was swimming a lot, and I needed a new way to um, work out, basically. Uh, So I wanted to get into cycling a bit, and the ride seemed interesting and fun. Um, And I'd never done a big fundraising event before, although I didn't think about it very deeply at the time until I actually, like, signed myself up and looked at the routes. And I was just thinking to myself, like, oh, man, this is going to be a lot of miles. And I've never ridden more than like 25 miles on a bike before.
1: <laughs> right? There's so. a total reality check that
4: happens.
1: Are <laughs> <laughs> like, wait, how long is 45 miles? Because, you know, up, up until the point, I agree with Ryan, up until the point that I had, um, that i gotten where I really had to start actually training, I had only ridden, I mean, 25 miles was probably the most that I had ridden. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's a reality check that happens there for sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then you discover hills.
4: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> hills are not my friend.
2: <laughs> and, and, and and since both of you knew people that had done it before, what were some of the stories and things that you had heard about the ride? that gave you a glimpse or made you think this is what it might be like, or this is what I can anticipate experiencing.
4: I've had a few friends tell me that it would be a little bit more, I don't know, out there than I was expecting it to be almost like it was just like going to be kind of a party ish scene. Um, But that didn't really seem to be the case, at least not from my perspective. So, It was just kind of funny. I feel like people kind of like hyped it up to be more like crazy fun rather than just like fun I would enjoy (laughs) only because they made it seem like, like I had no idea what I was getting into, but I I had a great time. So,
1: yeah. So the interesting thing about that, and I'm fascinated by this Ryan, the interesting thing about that is that I think you got a, uh, a gentleman's perspective of the ride, Um, because the majority of the people that I knew that had already done the ride were all women, mostly queer-identified LGBT community women, um, but mostly women, and so um, I, like, the stories that I heard were about the great rain disaster of 2012, where, you know, it just poured rain, and they ended up quitting the route, and some people got through and didn't, of course, my experience, that was on day seven, but not to the Magnitude that they did in twelve. Um, you know, I heard about the extraordinary sense of physical accomplishment. Women who were like, I had never been on a bike before, but I committed to this, and this is what I was doing. And then um, I also have a friend who is uh, for sport, a triathlete, and so for her it was competitive. She got up early. She was on the route first. She tried to be the first one into camp. Um, And I didn't hear a lot of stories of, you know, uh, laid back, sort of partying, having fun, um, Mm -hmm. other than rest up for. Like, that was the most (laughs) I heard. It was like, wait until rest up for every day, you're going to love it. And that was it. So it's interesting that you and I heard different um, sort of previews of the ride leading up. Yeah,
4: most of the people I heard from were gay men. (laughs) Um, and I think it really depends on what you really want to make of the trip too because I've talked with people who had a much different experience than I had on the trip which you know it was just very interesting I was mostly just concentrated on getting to the next point not that I was like overly tired because I trained fairly well um, but I just like wanted to make sure I did the whole thing and did all the miles and yeah, and I wanted to make sure I ate every night when we got a big camp
0: because
4: <laughs> I was so hungry. <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So um, um,
2: what is it that motivated both of you to decide to do it as a writer versus doing it as a roadie or crew? Oh, everybody
1: says being a roadie is harder. Like that's – I mean, that's everything that I heard. Like being a roadie, cycling the route, like riding the route, is hard there's no doubt about that but being a roadie is harder um and i'm not i'm not like a gear schlepper i'm not like a i mean let's be frank i know none of your uh listeners can see me but i'm an extraordinarily femme woman so the, the sort of task of hard labor didn't sound fun for me at all and still doesn't especially now that i've seen what roadies have to do that is some hard work it is hard And I, and I don't want to, um, and that was, I mean, that's really all it was. I wanted, I wanted to bike the ride. I didn't, I didn't want to, um, you know, cut bananas in half every day or, you know, carry people's luggage around. I didn't want to do any of that. The important part for me was doing the ride as part of physical accomplishment. In addition to the fundraising, that, uh, it was obviously the most important part.
4: Yeah, I feel the same way. Um, I really just wanted to do the ride. Even though it is really hard, it's still a lot of fun, and I didn't think I would enjoy myself as much to um, be a roadie. Um, But they do a lot of work, and it's pretty incredible um, just how well set up and organized it is. You really don't see them setting up and tearing down, but... There are four rest stops every day, and there's so much support happens that It's just amazing. And I also saw it as a big accomplishment for myself to ride so many miles every day and to be a part of the fundraising.
0: Now, I'm just
2: going to say, and some people will argue with me, but I think the roadies are really the heroes of the ride.
1: Oh, I totally agree.
2: Because of, exactly. uh, but you know, speaking of that, can you talk about the the discovery of the logistics of how they do this? Because it's like a little movable city <laughs> that is mm-hmm. set up and taken down and moved every day for a week uh, of time. So can you just talk about what it's like to suddenly be in that and really see the reality of what that is and
4: what that means? So when I the first day on the ride, I was actually a little nervous to like hand over my bag because I'd been warned Like they get really annoyed at you. If you forget something in your bag and you have to ask them to get it, <laughs> which is totally fair. Cause I have a bunch of bags to do it. But I was really nervous also because I'm like, I'm giving up this bag and I'm trusting them with like all the things I need for these seven days. I was like, okay, there you go. But, um, it was very amazing. Like there are four stops every day on the ride. um, so not only do they like serve you breakfast in the morning and take your tent and your bag every morning, um, there are four stops between the beginning and the end that will have porta potties, water for your water bottles, snacks, uh, medical tent with like sunscreen and any like ibuprofen and um, also like a bike repair people, which that'll fix your bike. Yeah. and on top of the people that are driving around the route ready to pick people up if they can't like make it to the next stop for whatever reason um and that was like really cool to see it, they make it so easy in a way for us to finish the ride every day.
1: i agree i mean the the whole the whole thing is it's a well-oiled machine slash traveling city. You know I mean? I see you said it perfectly when you're like, it's, it's really a, a town that just moves. Um, you know, I mean, I, I live nearby places that have a population of fewer than 3,000. And, you know, here we are, 3,000 people just making it around um, from San Francisco to Los Angeles. But the thing that was the most sort of uh, memorable moment for me in relationship to this movable town, the movable city, um, was that I was obviously very nervous going on the ride the first day. Uh, I did not have a tent mate. I did not sign up to ride with a team. I had a number of friends who were participants on the ride, but nobody that I had, you know, I, had, I, I showed up alone, you know, and I was tenting alone and I was riding alone. And, and we can talk more about that later because that was my, my primary experience was just being alone. But, um, after we got done with day one and I, you know, I got my tent set up and I slept moderately successfully, woke up the next morning, you know, put all of my things away and went to go take them to the to the gear truck. I was like, Okay, I know how this works now and I know where my tent goes in the grid, I know how far it is from the trucks, I know how far I am from the food, and then I was like, Oh shit, it's all gonna be different mm-hmm. at the end of the day today. Like so That's I had so- this I had to relearn every day where I was gonna live, where I was gonna eat, where I was gonna use the shower. And it was like moving into a new apartment every day for seven days, you know, you have to sort of reacclimate. And so that part of it was less challenging as the week went on, but it, I, you know, I'd say day one, two, and three, it was a little nerve wracking until you kind of get your groove. But there was, there was definitely acclimations that needed to happen um, in relationship to everything moving
4: constantly. Yeah, the first night I actually distinctly remember like, okay, this is where oh that's where the showers are, and then we have to walk around this way, and we get to our tents, and that's where the trucks are to hand off our bags, and then that night I was like, oh yeah, like I don't <laughs> need to be remembering this.
0: <laughs> right, right. It's just like, Yeah, insane. yeah. It was,
1: it was in that moment though that I had this I had this moment of clarity about what it must be like to be a rock star and i was like for a minute i was like maybe i'm just a rock star this week
0: <laughs> that was like the
1: one thing that made me like believe in life <laughs> <laughs> yeah except
4: for you don't have to sleep on the ground every night right. <laughs> and you're <a> rock star.
2: <laughs> um so you probably don't know who you're sleeping with every night uh-huh.
0: um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, in in addition to that, I also want to just, you know, give a shout out to the fact that they have such full-service medical and also Mm -hmm. bike repair, right, on site the whole time.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. full-service medical and bike repair at every stop. But then when you get into camp, not only full-service medical, but also sports therapists, Mm -hmm. massage therapists, chiropractors, I mean, there is a huge uh, population, if you will, of people who are volunteering their time to help you remain healthy. And, you know, it's interesting because the physical challenges that I assumed that I would have on the ride were not the ones that I actually did have. Um and so I was met by day three with a whole new set of physical problems that I was like, Oh, I had no idea that this, this would happen to me or that would happen to me. And not knowing because I'd never experienced it before, not knowing how to handle that, you know, you walk into the medical tent, you put your name on the list and fifteen minutes later they call your name and you're talking to either a doctor or a, you know, or a massage therapist or a chiropractor, and they have the information to help you get better. Mm
0: -hmm. And that
1: was really incredible. So that's probably the, one of the greatest sort of miracles of the ride to me, is that they have people who volunteer their time to make sure that we stay healthy and finish.
2: Now we've done the training and talked about what we anticipated. And then comes day zero give us give us a little bit of a taste of what goes through your mind, what goes through your body, what you feel emotionally when you get to the cow palace, the place where everybody gathers for the opening ceremony and then rides out of, and then what it's like to finally be on the road for the first time in the ride itself, not on a training ride, but everything you've been working towards is now becoming reality. You know, Can you just talk a little bit about what that experience is like on that first day
1: day zero the most exciting thing i did was signed up for 2017 um but i had already i had done a lot of research i i knew what to expect i knew what day zero was going to look like i talked to people on my training rides um it was it was day one when you go in and everybody's there and it's opening ceremonies and you know and they have the um the riderless bicycle, um, and that is, that's powerful. Um, in fact, the, the people that I was with on day one that I had, that I had found that I knew, they took me and they put me up against, uh, the, the rope. They were like, you are going to want to be here. You are going to want to be close to this and see it. Um, and we want you to be close. So we will step back several people deep so that those of you who have never done this before can experience this and that was really wonderful Mm
3: -hmm. and
1: then you go and you get on your bike and then you ride out and there's people and they're cheering for you and you get you know you get like a mile or two out and then like holy shit what have I just signed up for kicks in (laughs) (laughs) you're like oh I guess I guess I'm really doing this like this is this is real okay and 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 I just settled in, you know, I just sort of took a deep breath and tried to find the most comfortable thing about riding my bike and figured I was just going to do this, exactly this for seven days. It was in those first few miles that I really had to grapple with the awareness of what I had committed to and, and then also uh, really get into my soul about why I had made this decision and what it was that I actually had create, You know, what change am I creating? You know, I raised $7,000. And you know, what was that $7,000 gonna do? And who was it gonna help and who was it gonna affect? And so that was, my, my day one was really spent, those first few miles were really spent making peace with the fact that I had done this absolutely insane thing. And then I got a flat tire and then I changed
4: everything. <laughs> On <laughs> day one.
0: That
4: was the beginning. For us. Uh, so, I kind of have a story that goes along with my day zero. So on day zero, you are basically just going to Cal Palace and dropping off your bike and going through all of the like information stuff and introduction stuff. Um, so I rode with a team, and. The plan was to meet up there around, I think it was 9 or 10 in the morning um, on Saturday. So I had a friend drive me up with my bike, with my suitcase, because I was staying in the city overnight for the following day, for day one. And um, so I go up to the city, drop off my bike, meet up with my teammates, and then I realized, oh, shit, I didn't pack my cycling shoes with (laughs) with my clips, like on my cycling shoes. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I live in the South Bay. It's like an hour drive-ish. And it's not that bad, but I didn't, you know, I had driven up here and made plans to stay over. So I call my friend. He says he can't find them. And I'm freaking out. So I get a ride from my teammate back down to the South Bay trying to look for these shoes, and I can't find them. So I... <laughs> I go to REI and buy brand new shoes and clips, and then catch Caltrain back up to the city and take a lift to my friend's house. And by the time I get there, it's like time to go to bed. It it still worked out, but it was so that was probably the most stressful part of the ride. But uh, day one was a lot of fun for me. you know, the, the, what, what is it called? The riderless bicycles, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was pretty powerful. Actually. It's like supposed to represent, um, people who have, uh, passed away from HIV or AIDS, then the ride out was definitely the cool part. Like I knew people would be tearing us on. You know, but it just I didn't really know what it would have felt like and it was really cool riding past everybody, cheering us on and riding with everybody too, and um and then we get a few miles out and we still get like a full lane dedicated to us at least, um for the first, I don't know, ten miles or something. Um and it was it was a lot of fun. I will remember day one for a long time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, and both of you have mentioned now, and you, you both did this very differently, so I'm, I'm wondering how you came to either ride with a team or to embark upon this solo, basically, um, and if you would decide to do it differently or if you are now even more convinced that doing it that way is really how you would like to experience the ride.
4: Um, so I decided to ride with the team. When I had signed up, I, I just signed up alone and figured I could rely on my friends to, you know, who had done it in the past to just let me know what to expect and how to prepare. Um, and I did some training rides in the South Bay with Awesome Ahead. Uh, but I had gone to a um, a barbecue in the South Bay with uh, just a social barbecue with a bunch of um, uh, gay guys from the, around the area and um, I told them that I had signed up and they said they had a team and I said okay I'll join you guys and it's been a good experience I've met met some really nice people from my team um, however I'm not sure if I'll sign up again with the team because Coordination with the team could be difficult. I didn't really get to do a lot of activities that I wanted to do with my team. Um, so it kind of just made it another thing to pay attention to. Um, and I think I'll try to either go it alone or, you know, potentially do it with another team. I'm not sure.
1: So I had exactly the opposite experience. Um, I didn't ride with a team. I didn't, um, there was, so I live in the far north end of the North Bay. I live in Sonoma County, which is uh, a good hour north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And there was not a team in place up here that I uh, felt aligned with. There was only one team that I knew of, and it was um, out of, it was a group of people that all attended the same uh, non-denominational church group. And that didn't really resonate with me, although I loved those people. I didn't necessarily want to be part of that team. So I trained with a group of riders who all were teamless plus this small team from the church. And um, so when I got on the ride, I didn't, I had some camaraderie with people that I had trained with, but it was, you know, there's 3,000 people there. You don't, there were people that I knew were on the ride that I never saw. In the entire seven days, I did not see them once. Friends of mine who were on the ride and we did not see each other. Um, so, in that aspect, I think that the team, uh, the, the the team aspect would be nice because at least you know that you know at a certain time you can go here and you can be with your people. Um, but I, my experience as a rider without a team was incredible. Um, and that was a very difficult thing for me. Um, I'm a highly social person. I thought, you know, I, I thought I would go on the ride and I would um, make 20 new best friends, if not 40 or 100. And that's sort of the way that I operate. And I'm, I'm, I feel very comfortable going places alone because I know that when I leave, I will have met new people. And that experience didn't happen for me on the ride. And when I was done and I got home and was feeling these you know, big pains of, of loneliness, of, of, of being by myself for so long, um, the, the first thing that I did was reached out to a uh, Facebook group um, that is designed for specifically women who, who do a blood cycle. And I expressed these feelings, you know, like I got home and I still feel very lonely. I feel like the whole experience was lonely and hard. And the biggest piece of feedback that I got was, based on your experience, we think you should be on a team next year. Um, so next year, I'm going to join a team, and I'm going to be on a team. Let me see how that works, because I, my experience not being on a team didn't work for me. So the the only other option is to be on <laughs> is to be on a team. um so I'm going to give that a try
4: and see how it goes. It's interesting that you. Brought up loneliness um, on the ride because uh, all the other members of my team are much faster than me. <laughs> uh-huh,
1: no, they all thought everybody in the whole ride was faster than me. I got you yeah. on that one.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I fortunately had my tent mate who um, I had trained with on the uh, weekend training rides on Sunday mornings. Um, uh, we ride at very similar paces. Um, so we had started off the first two and a half days riding mostly close to each other and oftentimes on the other days of the week. Um, so that was really nice to have, but it was also nice to, it was really nice to have that comfort zone kind of like it's a place to like have a guy to chat with the entire way for, for the first two days. But then also, um, I knew my teammates at the rest stops, and um, I would eventually come to, like, just chat with random people. And then I actually ended up meeting um, a guy from another team who was at a very similar pace as I was riding on day four, or five, and six, I think it was. Um, And I have considered joining that team because it's a much bigger group, and it seems like it wouldn't be, you know, as lonely in a way. Like, I'm part of this team, but I am always, like, way behind them, so it kind of defeats the purpose of never seeing them.
2: So if if somebody was thinking about doing the ride, how would you suggest they go about considering whether to join a, a team as part of the experience or to maybe go it alone and do it solo?
4: I would say make sure you're a part of training rides. If you want to go solo, make sure you're part of training rides. um, And you'll know people that are in a similar pacing as you, or if you're going to join a team, try to ride with some of those members um, and see if you're at the same pace as well.
1: Uh, you know, I have to say that I don't know that I have any advice. I think for each person, it's in the, it's, in, it's different. Um, I have friends who have said, I've ridden on a team, and I've decided it's not for me. And I've had friends who've said, you know, I, I don't ever want to be on a team ever. Um, I think everybody just has their own. You know, I've I say once, you can't only do a life cycle once. You, you do it once to find out what it's like, and then you do it again, so that you can really make the most of the experience. You kind of learn what to do the first time, so the second time, it's it's better slash easier, um, but I thought that was really interesting, you know, to hear somebody say, you can't do, you can't do it once, and decide that it was bad, you know, you never want to do it again. You have to do it twice.
2: Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, to me, it's interesting that, uh, like, for you, Sari, that your your normal experience in life is that you can go into any place alone and walk out with new friends. And yet that didn't seem to happen in this particular situation where you might think it would because you're like, well, everybody's there for a common cause and, you know, all of those kind of things. What kind of uh, makeup of the crowd did you find? And were there any surprises for either of you in terms of Uh, who you discovered as doing the ride and that kind of thing versus what you thought the crowd would kind of be like that was, was part of this whole endeavor.
1: Well, I thought the crowd was fairly, um, it's what I expected. Um, I knew that there would be a, the majority of the people on the ride would be uh, gentlemen who identified as gay. Uh, And that was the case there were a lot of um there were a lot of straight people on the ride that i met um you know i met husbands and wives who were doing the ride together um there were a lot of women whether they were queer or straight or you know however they identified i i didn't always know
4: i also i consider myself to be much more of an introvert and i found myself gaining confidence as a as the days went on, to bring up conversations. um, Uh,
2: You know, I I very often hear from people, they they say the experience is like for a week's time living in a love bubble, and that there's kind of this idealized version of community that this kind of represents. You know, A, I I would wonder if you feel you experienced that as well. Um, But B, I would also be curious even in the brief interactions you might have had with people, if you discovered some interesting stories and characters and reasons why people were doing the ride that you came across? You know,
4: even though I am comfortable with my sexuality, I mean, I'm gay. I don't, you know, it's not like me to flirt that often, but at the end of the ride, I felt like very comfortable with it in a new way I felt, um, which was really nice for me. Um, it's kind of hard to explain and very personal, uh, but maybe that was part of the love bubble that I was feeling. I'm not sure.
2: And do you feel you brought that back in your everyday life now, or do you feel that was something that got stimulated in you because of the environment, but then it kind of wore off when you had to come out of that environment?
4: It definitely at least stuck with me for a while, if not, um, it's still, you know, present within me um, because of the ride, just because it made it feel, I don't know, like much more comfortable with flirting with somebody I think is cute or whatever. Um, I'm not sure. Um, We'll see. I don't know. We'll see how this next year goes between this ride and the next ride. I guess. <laughs> I
1: mean, to me, I think that the love bubble was more defined as a generalized sense of uh, community that we and I and I say we, referring to people in the LGBTQ community. We don't necessarily experience on a regular basis. You know, I, we don't walk around feeling very comfortable about everything all the time um like you do in on the ride um you know we we are afraid sometimes to hold our partner or our lover or our girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse's hand in the grocery store you know we're we're cautious of displaying public affection um Mm -hmm. this is sort of a a generalized thing that we've all experienced, you know, at least once in our lives, being uncertain of, you know, the risk of, of homophobia, um, you know, being around. And so the love bubble sort of negates that. Um, it, it, it makes it so that you are in a safe place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But also, you know, people would put their entire bags outside their tent all night long. You know, and if, if you are a really terrible, horrible person, you could go, you know, pilfering through everybody's bag at night. But um, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a community of, of trust, of respect, of care um, that, that just exists by default because we are sort of all in this together. Um, it's, I can by no means speak to what it must have been like on 9-11, but it's almost like we all got together and we're like, we can all do this together. You know, we are mm-hmm. all united for this one cause to make sure that we all make it to the end of this week. And, and that sense of support of just strangers was that part was really wonderful. It, it mm-hmm. was, it was, I mean, that was sort of my definition of the love bubble.
4: Yeah, I would say there's no doubt that it definitely is an environment that makes you feel comfortable being who you are and accepting of that, which is great.
2: Can you remember where that kind of tipping point was when you went from still consciously thinking about the fact of I'm on this ride and I'm in this camp and that kind of thing to – this is my normal everyday world and existence, and I don't even think about that versus whatever's happening outside, would be more of the jarring aspect of things.
4: Mm-hmm. When I woke up on day six, I really didn't want to get on my bike at all. So, but once I actually got on my bike, it was easy. It was strange. Um, from that, like day six and day seven were pretty easy, um, surprisingly. Um, and it was, you know, it, it was an interesting experience because I think I was just so mentally and physically exhausted that day five was, like, the day to go to bed early. And I'm glad that I did.
1: <laughs> you know, there there were definitely days that you hit the wall and you're grumpy. Um, I cried several times on the ride, during the ride. Climbing,
4: I, going I down will admit I did cry a little bit on day five.
1: Yeah. There's, I mean, it's, it is, it's hard and it's emotional
4: and I am a
1: very stoic person and I found myself getting into lunch stops and just rolling in and putting my foot on the ground and crying.
0: Mm. Um,
1: and it, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's physically challenging. There's no doubt about that. It is mentally challenging in relationship to the physical aspects. But I think the part that I wasn't expecting was the emotional uh, experience that I, that I
2: had.
4: Yeah, me too.
2: Yeah. Well, and, and it makes me think there's there's a few stories that, like, just have been burned into my head that I hear, you know, from Jeff and other people that we know that, that do the ride and, and that kind of thing. Um and, and I'm, I'm just going to share a couple of them here, but I then want to hear perhaps some of the most more, you know, profound um, realizations, experiences, stories, uh, situations that you might have come across during the ride, if, if any. Um, you know, but I, a couple of years ago, there was a couple in their, like, 50s or something that were doing the ride, a, a man and a woman. And they had gotten special permission to do it. They, they, it was only a week before the ride that they started to that they decided to do it and ask if they could because their um, son had just died and they wanted to do it in his memory. Oh, oh yeah. See, um, you know, and, and then you hear the, the places where they stop, you know, or go through, like the woman who. You go through every year, and she's—it's in the middle of nowhere, and yet she's standing mm-hmm. there by the side of the road, and she bakes cookies, and hands them out to everybody riding by. Every year, she's been doing this for I don't know, like 15 <laughs> years or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw her. Oh, you did. <laughs> um, and then there's there's the town you go through. Um, I forget the name of it. It's a small town, but they have they have all of the kids. The school kids Mm -hmm. come out, and they set up the the rest Mm -hmm. stop and they have, like, lunch, you know, and it started out very simply, apparently, because they wanted the school kids to come out and, like, cheer the writers on when they came through, and then they started doing this, and, and it became such a big deal that now they have this whole barbecue where they sell hamburgers and hot dogs and stuff, and they might sell them for $5, but people apparently will come through and they will just hand over $1,000 because it's become the only fundraising that the school has to do every year. Um, and they have gone, uh, the, the when Jeff did it most recently, um, they, just from that rest stop, they had raised like $45,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some people just the handing over money.
1: Yeah, the sign this year that they had hanging on the fence said that the year prior they had raised it was it was somewhere between forty and forty-five thousand dollars just on that one restaurant. So they they do a hundred-dollar hamburger club oh,
0: that's where what you is, yeah.
1: get the you get the same exact hamburger as everybody else, but you get it in an air-conditioned room. Which, trust me, that day was important.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: you know, and they and they felt like the kids make bracelets and they make buttons and, you know, all these things. And, and they don't sell them for a price. They just say, you may have one, and we ask that you make a donation and just put the cash in the jar. Yeah,
2: um, but and, I, that, yeah. and I think it really speaks to how the community in terms of where you go through has also become part of the ride and has been touched by the ride uh, and how they really show up and come out to, to support the ride as well rather than just hearing a news story that some people on a bike rode through kind of thing. It becomes an event in a lot of these places.
4: Uh, the first thing is just that it's very moving to see like every day, all seven days, even if you're like in the middle of nowhere, you will come across random people just on the side of the road cheering us on. And it's very fun to see and very I don't know. Keeps you motivated.
0: Yeah, there was
1: um, one lady in back robe like sitting on a lawn chair in the yard in a back robe. But she mm-hmm. was there and waving saying, and it was great. She's she a bathrobe. It was so important for her to be out there to church. She couldn't get dressed.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So, <laughs> that that just <laughs> fascinating.
4: Yeah. And and um Claude Buster is an infamous hill that like has this like increasing ascent or degree. Um, And there are a lot of people, including cyclists, who once they get to the top, they like pull over and cheer everybody else on behind them Mm -hmm. um, because it is a really big hill and it's pretty tough. (laughs) But I remember, I think I remember this for a long time. There's one guy who was, you know, just barely behind me and I had gotten off my bike to start cheering other people on and he once he got to the top he like almost immediately just broke down in tears and it was very moving to see um, that Um, (laughs) so this um, couple a married couple used to do the ride like I don't know for years And, um, one day Edna just, I don't know what day it was on, but she had collapsed and had died in her husband's arms, basically, um, just right in front of him without real, a real explanation other than like a cardiac event. Um, I mean, she had been healthy enough to ride many years before, but, um, Not, I don't know, something had happened. And I guess the husband, and I feel really bad for not knowing his name, um, had done the ride the the next year um, on a tandem bicycle with Edna's ashes on the rear seat. And that Mm -hmm. story, like, makes me tear up every time. It's so, I don't know very moving. I can't imagine. I don't
1: know. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, so Team Edna was put together, of course, in Edna's honor, um, and they did a great job. I mean, their fundraising was incredible. They did an excellent job fundraising. There were a lot of people that joined the team because of uh because of Edna and because of her and her husband's long-standing history as a cyclist for ALC um the story that probably touched me the most um was similar but without the unfortunate ending um a woman by the name of uh, her name is Teresa that everybody calls her t Bed. um she had uh she had done the ride in prior years and had convinced her best friend to do the ride with her this year uh, and her friend's name is, is aubrey and aubrey had not ridden a bike uh in her adult life didn't really know anything about this as was all just all in you know absolutely i'm going to do this ride and they were training um and they were training in the east bay early in the year, um, I want to say January or February, and they, the two of them plus a number of other people on the same training ride um, were doing a descent. And, and Aubrey, nobody really knows what happened. Um, Aubrey was on the ground uh, and people came up on her and found her on the ground. And uh, they, you know, the ambulance came of course and off she went. She was in a coma for a very long period of time. Um, She has a tremendous amount of rehab to go through. Still, in fact, she's, she's been moved from the Bay Area to Florida because um, her insurance plan doesn't cover a lot of her uh, recuperation, her physical therapy, everything. And it's less expensive in Florida, so she had to go there. Um, But Tina put together this, you know, sort of team obs you know, new jerseys to help, you know, support her her uh, her you know her medical costs and all of that. But in the process, Tito didn't get a chance to train for the ride because she had spent the majority of her time in the hospital next to Aubrey. And come quadbuster, um, she was really struggling getting up that hill. And there is, there is a, 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 a moment in several of the videos that have come out from this year where Tita's really having a tough time getting up the hill and some other cyclists who were not on their bikes at the time came up behind her and just pushed and pushed and pushed her up that hill so that she could get to the top because she had spent so much of her training hours by her best friend's side, helping her heal. So it's just, the entire amount of support around people who are committed to showing up for the ride, even though something has gotten in their way um, mm-hmm. is, it's just, it's tremendous. It's tremendous. The amount of support.
2: Which, which uh, from what you just said, a, two could also just include the whole group of positive peddlers that people with HIV who are willing to go out and do this ride rather than say, Oh, I can't do it because of my illness, right. you know. Versus they right. say, nope, I'm gonna get out there and do it. And it's because they there is all of that support. And I think all of this illustrates kind of where that love bubble uh, idea comes from is just Excellent. experiencing. And even even if you don't experience it personally, but just seeing people offering that kind of support and and love and connection and everything. So. You come through all of these experiences, and then comes day seven. (laughs) Now, I know I'm speaking more generally here. I realize for you this year there were some challenges on day seven that perhaps, you know, certainly characterized part of the day. Um, But from embarking on day one to now coming, well, day seven is kind of interesting, I think, and you can... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's 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 the day where you get to have the great experience of riding on the freeway, of LA. <laughs> um, no lanes blocked off for you, mind you, just you and everybody else on the freeway. But
4: mm-hmm. then you,
2: then there's the closing ceremonies and everything. So now that you've come to the end or are nearing the end of this uh, adventure, what was what was day seven like? Both. I realized from some of the challenges, but then also when you are in the closing ceremonies,
4: realizing it's done. Um, so the beginning of the day, I remember (laughs) a lot of people, including my tent mate saying like, Oh, I don't need my arm warmers or anything. Mm -hmm. And me (laughs) being like "A first year rider, I'm like, yeah, I haven't needed this like wind jacket that much. And I always bring it with me. So I'm just going to bring it anyways. And it's supposed to be, like, pretty good weather all the way into L.A. And about, like, I don't know, a half hour or so, maybe an hour into it, it starts pouring rain. Once the rain had uh, subsided and we were about into Malibu, I think, it cleared up pretty quickly. Once we got towards the end, there's, like, one last hill that's pretty rough. Um, but just knowing that it's the last one you have to do made it uh, made it manageable. It's just like just this one last big hill. I've done a bunch already. I can do this one too. Um, and I ended up coordinating with my teammates so we could do the last like 10 miles together and ride in. It, it was a, it was a nice time because I was also the longest of time that I rode with all my teammates because they were all much faster than me most of the ride um, and riding in was fun too it was kind of a similar feeling of the ride out when everybody's cheering you on um, there's, there are people there cheering you at the finish line it was fun I enjoyed it and it dropped us off in like West Hollywood and Pride was the next day so that was cool
1: I think day seven was definitely the, the most challenging because as miserable as that rain was, nobody really wanted to get on the bus because if you get on the bus, you don't get to cross the finish line. And and didn't we do this so that we can have our picture tape.
0: <laughs>
1: Everybody knew they just had to stop and just keep going. And it was hard. I came around the corner just shy of the finish line and there's my best friend, who I did this ride for, and he jumped into the street and waved his arms and he, you know, was screaming, "Yay, yay, sir, you did it, you did it! I'm so proud of you! I'm so proud of you!" So being able to to have that experience was was huge. I mean, I just I started crying immediately um, when I saw him, and then. Um, Finished and got done, and you know gave them my bike because you know you put they put your bike on a big truck and they ship it back up. and and there's there's this sense of um, when you finish, there's there's a sense of accomplishment, but also crap, what do I do now? You know, I've just done this huge thing to benefit the HIV and AIDS community in California. I've done this huge thing for my physical and emotional and mental body. I've done this huge thing for my best friend who couldn't do it himself. Um, I'm a mother. I've just done this huge thing to, to show my daughters that you can do hard things. Even at my age,
3: I'm 42.
1: And I didn't know what to do. You know, I got done and I was like, well, there was this sense of like, now what? You don't know what to do next. Um, and so we did what every good person would do after they'd ridden 545 miles, and we went and had a gigantic space dinner. <laughs> 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 it was the greatest thing ever. It was the greatest meal I've ever had. But it, it's it's a it, there's reentry. You know there's there's reentry when you get done with the ride. There's there's no there are no roadies telling you which way to turn. There's nobody telling you it's this way to the food or it's that way to the bathroom or it's this way, you know. There's reentry into the real world and it's and it takes some adjustment, for sure.
4: Yeah, I experienced that too. Um, at the end of the ride, it was like, wow, I did it, and it's, I'm so happy that I I finished and I did all the miles and. Um, and then it was like, okay, now where do I go? Like even after, you know, at bike parking or, you know, you don't have to park your bike. You could walk it to wherever it goes or walk it to the, you know, to get it shipped back to San Francisco or whatever. And it's all up to you now. And it's just a very sudden, like everything has been structured for you for the past seven days. And now it's not. (laughs) <laughs> but I remember like being so glad I had like choices for food and being able to use a real sink because you never use a, like running water on the entire ride. You're using hand sanitizer and uh, like uh, sanitizing wipes. Um, and yeah, there definitely is a re-entry there. I remember being very disappointed. Not disappointed, but, like, sad it was over when I was at work that following Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also like, but at the same time, but I'm glad I don't have to ride my bike today. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then you wake up the next day to the news about Orlando. And I'm curious if that affected the reentry and if it, was, it felt more affecting because you were kind of in this already raw state uh after that week
1: to me it did um you know to to get home from the ride and have this the one thing that was good um not that anything about orlando is good at all but the one thing that was good was that we had saturday to celebrate and sunday morning we woke up to tragedy there's no word to describe having from my perspective um, being, being in person in the LGBT community, identifying as lesbian, but certainly I'm not a person of color. I'm Caucasian. Um, I'm not, I'm not male. I'm not, I, I, I'm not a gay male. Um, to know that I have done all this work all week for people who are more easily afflicted, um, or more easily susceptible to HIV and AIDS. And then to find out that all the work that I had done all week long to keep more men from dying was moot. And at least it felt moot to me. You know, it, it would be incredibly selfish to say that, oh, Orlando happened and it stole our thunder. Because that's, that's not at all what happened. Um, you know, the tragedy struck and we all shifted our focus. Um, you know, just like we do, (laughs) frankly, every week when something big and noteworthy happens either in our community or to our community or, you know, in the the broader spectrum to people of color or, you know, any marginalized community, um, there's always going to be something important and urgent for us to place our focus on and for those seven days our focus was the ride and then when we got home it was time for us to focus on Orlando it it was an easy shift for me because I, I, I I do everything that I can to be in constant support of my community the whole reason why I did this was to support my community and so I just continued doing what I had done
0: for the prior seven days
2: so you both indicated that, despite it all, you're signed up to do it again
0: next mm-hmm. year.
2: Are you anxious, excited, doubting? Second note, uh, second thoughts. Um, you know, at, at this point, how are you feeling about doing
4: that? I, <laughs> I didn't sign up immediately. I was thinking like, uh, this is a lot of work. Not sure if I really want to do it. The same team is the fundraising going to be more difficult because it's not my first year. Um, not that it was too difficult for me this, this year, uh, this past year. Um, but at, at the last minute after the finish line, I'm like, okay, I'll just sign up and you know, if I don't do it, that's fine. I haven't fully committed but I have a feeling I'm going to try to do it again next year.
1: <laughs> I'm signed up for next year. Uh, I signed up before I had even left on day one. Um, I had already signed up to go this, you know, next year or this coming year. Um, and I have to be very honest, when I crossed the finish line for probably the first 48 hours after being done with the ride, I was like, there's no way I'm doing that again. There is no way I'm doing that again, um, but as I have had some sort of decompression and I've sort of debriefed the entire event, I'm going next year. So, in fact, I've already started fundraising <laughs> for next year. So, um, oh, as much as it was hot and I was like, screw this, I'm never doing it again, I, I – I took a couple deep breaths and went, no, what the work, the work that it takes to participate in that for seven days, it pales in comparison to what it, I, what it must be like to live with HIV or AIDS. And if me doing that for seven days helps, then it, then it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it.
2: And I think that's the. A perfect ending point, especially for anybody who might have been considering doing the ride, that would be, I think, the, the, the linchpin thought for them to have about deciding whether to do it or not.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you. So I want to extend a thousand gratitudes to both of you for being willing to take some time and talk about your experiences, and hopefully you continue to look back on that Week of riding your bike um, with fondness and not with, you know, phantom pain in the butt area. Um, <laughs> um,
4: so, thank you for having us,
2: and we will look forward to cheering you on. Oh, oh.
0: That <laughs> <laughs> <I> was convincing
1: Revolution with host Ticey Luckmers. <laughs> with host Icy Ludmers, find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with high C reading space cadets welcome to July and radical departure June was a game-changer in a diversity of ways, and on so many political fronts. Whether it will galvanize a mediated response from larger interests remains to be seen, but there are events that occurred that do provide a powerful impetus for a change in policy decisions in the overall climate of world culture. In June, we witnessed the Pulse shootings in Orlando that took the lives of 49 and injured 53 others. This was followed by uprisings in Oaxaca, in which heavy-handed government responses over the neoliberalization of education in Mexico claimed the lives of nine participating in the actions, which echoed the same uprising in 2006 in Chiapas. This was then followed by the largely unexpected exit of the United Kingdom from the European Union, dubbed Brexit, the day of which saw the British pound drop 8% on the world market index, which is the worst in its entire history, and also triggered a 500-point drop in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, a measure of stock market performance. The reverberations of of this decision have yet to be felt beyond Britain, they will most assuredly and on many fronts outside of European influence. The interesting coincidence of all these events is that they reflect a tenth aspect between the symbol planet known as the Awakener, correlated to both revolution, eccentricity, humanitarian concerns, and natural disasters, Uranus, and the planetary symbol known as the Transformer, and correlated to evolution, organized crime, which much of our government is these days, Atomic energy, petroleum viruses, and social transformations, which have an air of inevitability. That they both formed a tense T square to the sun, the symbol set involved with identity, in this case, national identities, sovereignty, self determination, and the core self concept. This is further touched off by a Neptune in Aquarius retrograde, which is creating the illusory slippery slope of xenophobia. Further, they all fall within range of six planetary retrogrades. Normally, retrograde motion correlates to the symbology of backward motion, and in this case, a backsliding into authoritarian politics and the continuing neoliberal assault on culture, austerity, aggressive nationalism, and xenophobia. Alternative realities may, in fact, be a species survival strategy. These are the selective pressures that are acting on humanity to engage in what Joanna Macy calls the Great Turning, a radical departure in which the ways of outmoded consumption culture are abandoned in favor of a life-affirming alternative that understands the ecological complexity of planet Earth and benefits the greatest swath of humanity. And it's the theme for this month's forecast, Aries, you are the firebrand. Aries, the sexy, headstrong firebrand of the zodiac. Generally, the rams take a great deal of flack for their impulsivity. However, in these uncertain times we are living in, it might be a trait that is constructive and much needed. Here's how. Aries has the daring and courage to do the audacious gesture while others are cowed and hiding out in the crowd. In an age of increasing authoritarianism and borderline fascist ideology, individuals willing to burn it all down to the ground and surrender the white flag are in high demand. Further, in a time when civil rights and individual autonomy are being sacrificed on the altar of profit. The anarchists and freedom fighters that Aries represents are the only autonomous agents left to ensure that that liberty's bright flame is not snuffed out under the jackboot of idiocy masquerading as policy. Aries uniquely understands the concept of an injury to one is an injury to all and realizes that the loss of choice and the ability to act and exercise agency, which is the true meaning of power, Aries, you need to do it in an area that deals with value. I mean this in the practical sense of questioning the basis of money being central to existence. It's not. Is there an area in your life that has become oppressive and stagnant stagnant, and would do well with a little shaking up? Then please focus on that and shake things up. The world right now needs a completely new set of values, ethics, and motivations, and only your fresh pioneering spirit and enthusiasm can give the world the kick inside it
0: needs.
1: Taurus, you are the neuromancer. Taurus, you are deeply engaged in a process of changing the overall patterns of your mind. You're on a bit of a bender in which the doors of perception are being cleansed, and I mean that in the Aldous Huxley sense. If it seems like thought processes that have dominated your understanding are radically shifting in eccentric directions, And you are entertaining concepts that may seem bizarre and outlandish at first, but with a second look begin to make sense, then you are on the right track in terms of where your personal evolution is going. In a word, you are undergoing a radical departure in how your mind operates. At a time when exhausted ideologies are running the world, this is a revolutionary act. To change your mind and have the courage to entertain a more critical perspective, and trust that the radical ideas you are entertaining are a positive developments that are leading you to an intellectual freedom that will allow you to take on ideolog- ideologues who are using perception management to keep the masses enslaved enslaved on a roulette wheel of hyperconsumption and ecological ruin. Or basically, the expressway to human extinction. Don't buy into the bullshit. Use your intellectual firepower you were developing to see through the smoke screen. And like the 1984 Apple ad, smash the hammer through the mirror of false representation. Gemini, depth charge is your charge this month. Gemini, you are spending this July transit going into your personal depths and in particular your point of origin. If that has to do with your ancestral origins or even your cosmic ones, then all the better. In particular, you are editing the story of your origins. In the course of life, it is essential to understand our own backstory and how our personal history ties into the collective history of our species. The story of life's evolution and the unfolding saga of a universe defined as self-generated. The focus right now for Gemini is to look into the shadow of ancestral and cultural memory and see if certain legacies can be changed and ancient demons exercised in the process. Gemini, you are essentially unraveling the tangled web of history, both personal and collective. In this search-and-destroy mission, you are finding the aspects worth saving and reinventing to its 21st century analog, and then relegating the rest to the recycling agents of history. It can be a harrowing process as you are facing the ugliness of the human potential and the fact that most of the past has been mired in darkness and value systems that seem wickedly primitive to us today, interspersed with bright spots. And other periods of history that saw humanity advance in ways that did not require warfare and exploitation. Which brings us to Cancer, and you are the pleasure dome. Cancers tend to be relatively self-contained and generally like to stay home. They appreciate the comfort that it offers versus the red-hot chaos of the world at large. That said, with the Awakener tearing it up in your fifth house for most of the rest of this year and possibly beyond much of what you've found comfortable is up for review and revision, especially with it in retrograde motion. In a word, the familiar will actually become extremely alien and you'll find yourself experimenting ways you never thought possible. And and in this sense, it will be all about what brings pleasure. The pleasure sought after will be on the outlandish side and will be very unusual. In a word, a sort of Lou Reed-inspired walk on the wild side. Home will seem a stifling place where there's not much play to be had, so it may be you are venturing out more than usual. If home still feels like a haven, then it is the dawning of forbidden desires that are entering the cocoon of your psyche and breaking you open a little. I don't mean the kind of desire that has to do with long walks on the beach, but the kind that makes, that makes you face the existential grade question. I mean the ones that really turn your crank and explore what the squares would call kink. In a world where desire is largely manufactured, to get in touch The true desire is is revolutionary because it says that you can resist the temptation of consuming useless artifacts, but the the desires that inspire actions towards a more authentic world. This means the sort of desire that involves social change and community care as self-care, real desire, the kind that destroys illegitimate dynasties and sets the world back On a course to hypothesis. Which brings us to Leo, you are the workhorse. Leo has no problem with pleasure, leisure, or luxury. In fact, it is the currency they tend to deal in, which means that working is something that Leo may turn its nose up to. And given the current consensus reality we're currently dealing with, this disdain may have revolutionary potential. The Situationists of 1968, a countercultural group from Paris devoted to radical departure, gave us the politics of non-work, or how work was the reification of a Protestant's idea of salvation. In a word, work mostly sucks, and in an age of, it, of decreasing scarcity, is becoming increasingly useless to real on-the-ground economic activity. Take an act from the Situationist playbook and take an incredibly critical, lo- work, critical look at work and its meaning in your life. It's what July is all about. It may be time to go off the rails and do something totally unique, which would be a radical departure. And work is no longer work when it becomes a delirious play. Which brings us to Virgo. This month, you are nuclear fusion. Virgo likes to work. Not the work ethic of too late capitalism, nor the idea that work is a form of service to the goddess, which is just another word for
0: community.
1: Along these lines, Virgo tends to be self-contained, much like the lead character in J.G. Ballard's novel High Rise, or one of Ursula K. Lagoon's characters in anything she's ever written. In a word, Virgo is the hermetic fate of Hermes, as in hermit. This self-containment means that Berger will work tirelessly tirelessly doing any number of mundane tasks, from scrubbing the database to restructuring the World Health Organization. In the case of the modern world of overwork, this is effectively killing most of us as we are working for scraps and longer hours at the expense of the relationships in our lives. It is the focus for Virgo in July, with T-square activating this sector of your life and compelling you to make some radical choices. The question that comes to the fore is, what must I sacrifice for the sake of the links to others? Once answered, and the answer is likely to be a black swan, your famous work ethic must then be focused on the work of building resilient communities and partnerships that are capable of weathering the many converging crises that humanity is in store for in the immediate future. Which brings us to Libra, you are a lust bomb. Libra is instinct dressed in designer clothes. It is a swath of silk that covers the erect phallus and engorged clitoris of Scorpio. Libra, for the month of July, gets to take off the clothes and expose its target netherworlds as Uranus is tearing it up in the place of taboo desires. Libra is free to explore every subject that has been put off-limits by the the needs of alleged civility. Nothing is off-limits now, and it's a heady brew. This is not the romance of candlelight and fine wine, but instead, instead the impulse that makes you shiver with this desire to the point of terror. Libra is playing Pandora and opening her box to explore all the topics that are off limits and have led to deep divisions in society and a need for reconciliation all of which have profound implications for human society, and all which involve alleged inviolable concepts considered sacrosanct. Don't be an ounce surprised if you find that you are taking a contrary position on almost every topic up for discussion. A more critical perspective is needed when discussing, and on that challenges the popular view on most of these subjects you may end up joining a minority of people holding alternate opinions on the subject but heterodox perspectives is in keeping with the theme of course correction and departure and needed to bring refreshment to matters of great collective power and far future implication. which brings us to Scorpio this month you are our mother monster In Lady Gaga's music video for the song Born This Way, a science fiction scene unfolds with humanity's future in space. In it, we see a secret government project in which an area like Area 51 is cordoned off in space, and Gaga is the character Mother Monster. And she is seen churning and turning in space. She gives birth to both good and evil. Good is in the form of deeply loving creatures who are without prejudice, judgment, or distinction. And she states that something so pure needed to be protected, so she gave birth to evil to protect good. This is a potent metaphor for Uranus traversing the area of your life that has to do with foreign cultures, long distances, religion, and philosophy. In a word, Scorpio is refining our religious sensibilities and the framework on which our foreign policy hangs. In this case, it is doing what it does best and penetrating past taboos, namely actually talking about the issues that are so pressing, blowing the lid off religious hypocrisies and exposing, exposing political intrigues that deal with international reach. Granted, Scorpios on the ground aren't doing that kind of high-level exposure. That said, they're at least doing it locally in their own lives, and not just for the month of July, as Uranus will hang out in this sector until possibly 2018. It is a long-term process of pointing out problematic relationships. In essence, Scorpio, you are questioning moral frameworks, societies and your own. And don't be surprised if you if some seemingly outlandish conclusions emerge and the answers come from customs seemingly alien to your own. Which brings us to Sagittarius. You are the vox populi, David Bowie unicorn, famous for his extraordinary uniqueness and capacity for shape shifting. His the only symbol that expresses the Sagittarian impulse under the July solar transit, and of course the Iranian energy infusing the area of public exposure. In summary, the image that Sagittarius is projecting for public consumption is one that is seemingly very strange and unusual. Sagittarius has been on a long, strange trip in which every part of their identity has been under immense selective pressures. In a word, they are going thermonuclear, and it is only in the aftermath that a new identity can form. The archers are in the process of cutting their losses and
3: recognizing
1: they have nothing to lose any longer. And because of this, they experience themselves in in a place of terrifying freedom. And yet, because they are no longer concerned with outward appearances, their authenticity can shine through, which for the public can make it look like the Sagittarius is taking a walk on the wild side. I, I proclaim, please, keep it up. The world right now needs people with the bravery to personify that another world and a new way of being human is possible. Use July as a time to keep shaving the inside of your brain and cutting ties to a publicly acceptable identity and one that more reflects the world emerging. Capricorn, you are a commensal organisms. Capricorns are usually very solitary types, more content to climbing social hierarchies than being overly concerned with the concerns of collective life. That said, this is a concept in in upheaval, and Capricorns may find themselves actually becoming unexpectedly concerned with the state of the world and the fate of humanity as a collective, and
0: in the international sense.
1: There's a concept in biology in the subspecialty of systems theory. The theory is called horizontal hierarchy. In a community, each member has specific roles that they are valued for. At the same time, no member is obligated to the other and so they retain autonomy. There is no structure established where any one individual is in charge of the group, but leadership cycles through the group and changes hands frequently. This is in essence what Capricorns are spending July doing as this month will be at a maximum of high frequency due to the T-square, although it will be the background radiation of Capricorns until the transition of Uranus from Pisces to Aries in 2018. Which brings us to Aquarius. You are the difference engine. Aquarius tends to be at home with the erratic nature of its planetary ruler, Uranus. That said the T-square is slightly disconcerting because the water bearer can't see the upheaval because it is energizing the blind spots. July is a month devoted to plumbing the depths of the psyche and becoming very comfortable with the parts of self that have been lost for whatever reason. It is a moment of time to explore growing edges and to touch the things that scare you the most. What is never acknowledged about the shadow side of Aquarius is that this side holds both the liberation that the future represents and the terror it contains of the unexpected black swan events that could radically change humanity's place in the cosmological arc. Aquarius is essentially undergoing a soul retrieval where it is hunting down the parts of itself that were not safe for consumption in the cultural matrix they have matured into and now must make these vast alien unknowns known as it is is the only way to construct a viable future as an integrated and truly individuated being no longer subject to unconscious impulse. It means that Aquarius must go to the realm of the other or outlander and find a way to bring the fragments found, found there back into an integrated whole or to regenerate the pieces that have been lost forever. It won't be done in the course of July, but with the T-square providing impetus, it will be initiated and will start a profound shift. After all, you are the denizens of the strange light of the future, that ethereal other world. Which brings us to Pisces. This month, you are sui generis. Pisces has spent the better part of the last few years gestating in the other world, preparing itself to be regenerated and emerge transformed. It seems the metamorphosis is complete, and the fishes are ready to emerge from the chrysalis. The emergence, though, may cause some upheaval and unexpected changes to the social reality. Pisces has become profoundly fused with a cosmic framework that has allowed it to begin living in the concept of a longer now. Pisces is forward-thinking 10,000 years into the future in classical Uranian style, a future-oriented consciousness. Pisces is now urging the world to follow course and design technology and policy to support the evolution of civilization over the next 10,000 years of its cultural development. This is where the upheaval of Pisces shift in its frame of reference is so disruptive. Even so, it is exactly the kind of fresh insight the world needs to, to be infused with to move beyond the fossil mentality that dominates it now. High has is given July to imagine all the uncanny methods it can conceive of to disrupt machines that need interrupting. It is part of a longer-term strategy of redesigning civilization to weather the next 10 millennia. It begins by first acknowledging the birth of a new eon within your heart. Well, folks, may July be the chaotic attractor that moves you all into a new phase state and a higher level of functioning. Join me on Facebook at Prometheus the Astrologer. You can also check me out on the Siderealist. list. I have some contributions under the tab Prometheus the Astrologer. I will see you all next month at this frequency. And keep your eyes on the sky, Space Cadets. I'll see you all in August. Have a good one. with host Icy Ludmers find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with C. revolution with host Icy Ludmers find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with C. Please join us next time for Amethyst Oracle with Heidi Lunders and Charlie Harrington. Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. This is Deb Caracalla. Thank you for joining us.